Well, hey, good morning, everybody. This is uh, not table groups because there's no tables. Uh, but hey, welcome. Uh, it's Promotion Sunday, and so we have a lot of new faces in the room. So welcome to all of our new seventh graders. Uh, we're excited that you're with us. Um, oh, yeah, okay. It's just going to be one of those summers, isn't it, Caroline Key? It's just going to be one of those summers. All right, so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, While you're finding Acts 17, um, I want to kind of explain why we're doing what we're doing this morning. So, um, as you obviously notice, we're not at tables this morning. And usually on Sunday mornings, you guys are sitting around tables. I wanted to kind of break that for just today. uh, A, because it's promotion Sunday and it's a good time to do it. And B, because I think it's just a good time to do it for the whole group to kind of reiterate and explain and maybe get everybody on the same page of what are table groups and and what are they for and how should you kind of approach being a part of a table group? So um, the goal of table groups, especially in the summer, right? Because the summer months, you guys are, are free and, and I'm, we've even in, in years past encouraged you to, to go to different tables, like meet different leaders, meet some different students that go to a different table than you do. And then when we hit the school year, kind of lock in. And like, those are your people that you're going to study God's word with. And that's the leader that you're going to hear from, from the school year. But the summer months are kind of built in the structure of table groups for you to have some freedom, to move around, to get to know people, uh, to pray with one another, to, to meet and to grow in your relationships with other people. So my hope and prayer is that this summer, that would be your aim, that If you're a junior high student, you would make it your aim to get to know all of the table group leaders in the junior high tables. If you're a senior high student, get to know all the leaders in the senior high tables. It's also a time of transition, right? So we'll have some table leaders leaving us over the summer, some new table leaders filling in those gaps. So you have some movement all throughout the summer as we're going through the same book of the Bible. All the leaders have the same content. They're going to approach it maybe a little bit differently, but um, you're not going to get lost if you go to different tables. A couple other things. Number one, I would encourage you not to go to a table group full of people that you already know. So there's not a lot of opportunity in the youth ministry for you to have intentional time studying God's word um, with people that you can choose to be with, right? So like we choose your equipping groups for you, but table groups, you have some freedom to move around and say, man, I don't know that person really well. But whenever I've heard her talk, she always is like so thoughtful. And man, I want to hear what she has to say about this scripture coming up. Like, go sit with her in the table group, right? It's, a, it's an opportunity for you to meet people that you don't already know. Because what we don't want to have happen is for you to kind of, kind of get some tunnel vision with the people that you know and are comfortable with, which then bleeds into Wednesday nights, which then bleeds into other times in your life, to where when other guests and other students and other people in the youth group come in and try to be a part of what you're doing, I don't think that you have malicious intent, but you're so used to just being like, hey, these are my girls, or like, hey, these are my guys. It's hard for people to come in and be a part of that fellowship. And we want to have our eyes open to whoever's around us, not to push them away from the fellowship that we enjoy, but to draw them in to the fellowship that we enjoy. Does that make sense? So table groups is good practice for that. And it's a good opportunity for you to be able to exist with everybody else uh, in the youth ministry, at least within junior high and senior high. Another very big deal that 
I th- we're doing better today than we did the last time we did this. Table groups have never been gender specific. Now that may come as a shock to you um, because they are in practice gender specific, right? But they're not. I mean, you go look at those signs and it just says seventh through ninth grade or 10th through 12th grade. So again, another encouragement for you as we think about the summer, as we think about table groups, consider, right? Just consider being able to, to step out and to meet people if you're a guy who are girls or if you're a girl who are guys, because the rest of your life is going to be filled with both, right? And, and this is a great opportunity. I still blame, I think it's third grade. So, I, you know, Jennifer hasn't been long enough, have been there long enough for me to really blame her. But for you guys, it's totally Patty Chance's fault, right? It's totally Patty Chance's fault. You guys are co-ed until like third or fourth grade, and then they split you. And that's where everything breaks, right? And then you guys show up in the youth ministry, and you're like, if you're a guy, you're like, there are girls here, and I don't know what to do, Right? Or if you're a girl, you walk up and you're like, boys, stupid. Like, there are my girls over there, right? (laughs) We don't want that anymore, right? Like, we want you to be able to exist and be faithful and follow Jesus together, right? So so what I want to cultivate in you is not... Avoidance sometimes cultivates unintentionally this idea of suspicion. So, like, if I'm with all my guys and this girl shows up, like, oh, why is she here? Or, like, if I try to branch out, then other people are like, man, what's he doing, Right? We believe that this is the body of Christ. This is the family of God, which means all of us are brothers and sisters. And you would never have that thought about your like blood brother or like a sister in your family, right? That's what we want to cultivate here. So is it going to be awkward for you? Absolutely. Totally awkward. It's going to be weird until it's not, right? And then you've overcome that thing and it becomes this opportunity for us to really know and love and serve one another as a whole ministry and not just like the bros and the girls, right? So we want to kill the split as much as we can. Now, now, listen, if, if you're like, man, I just love like these guys I've been with for the last three years, and like we're really tight, and we, we study God's word together, like cool, like move around to your table groups, and if that's where you land for the semester, if like you have a three or four or five girls, that, like man, we just are so tight, and we study God's word together, we hold each other accountable, like great, like if that's the table that you want to land in, awesome, but maybe consider saying, hey, instead of us all being together, what if you three went to this table and you two went to this table and we started to invite in others that can enjoy the fellowship that we've developed over the last few years, enjoy the kind of love and the kind of trust that we've developed over the last few years. I'm not asking you to surrender everything that you've built, right? But I am saying, have your eyes open to invite others to the things that you already have, right? Because there are many of you in the room, especially our new seventh graders, this is it, right? Like this is day one. And so our older students and especially our eighth and ninth graders, like, you guys have some responsibility to, to invite them into those relationships. Same with my 11th and 12th graders, with the new 10th graders that have just come up. You have an opportunity to lead out in those ways. All right, that's basically enough about table groups. So next week, we'll have table groups back. And my encouragement and my challenge to you is to kind of take what I've said already and put those things into practice. Remember, move around, have some, some, some volatility this summer. It's fine, right? And then in the school year, when we start our fall semester series You can kind of lock it in for the school year. Make sense? Fantastic. Okay. All right. So this summer, we're going to be studying 1 Thessalonians. Now, you're in Acts 17. That's correct. I didn't misspeak. Um, We're going to start in Acts 17, but today we're going to get an overview of the first letter of 
to the Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul. And most scholars would say that 1 Thessalonians is the earliest writing that we have of Paul. So you want to hear Paul kind of in the middle of his ministry, just getting started on one of his missionary journeys, 1 Thessalonians is where it's at. He's with Silas, another worker, minister in the gospel, and Timothy. And they had just returned, or Timothy rather, had just returned from Thessalonica, um, the, the capital of Macedonia, Macedonia, um, to give a report to Paul and Silas on how the church in Thessalonica was doing. And on hearing that report, Paul says, hey, we need to write this letter. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, you and I are going to be reminded of the wonders of the gospel, the deep power of Christian love, the call to live in holiness and living in the sure hope that we have for Christ's return. So we believe, we believe that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica, probably around AD 50. So think, that's like less than 20 years away from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in the scheme of the writing of the New Testament, that's really, really close. And maybe you haven't ever thought about this, but like the Gospel of Matthew, which for those of us we just finished on Sunday mornings, was written after this letter. So Matthew would have had probably access to this letter in Thessalonica to, to have something to think about as he was writing about the story of Jesus. All of this that we learn about in 1 Thessalonians might, by God's grace, produce in us a particular kind of fruit, spiritual fruit. And that spiritual fruit will by God's grace, caused the world to wonder. Because not only did Paul write this letter to the, the church in Thessalonica 1900 some odd years ago, but the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write in such a way that by the Word of God going throughout time, we now receive it as a word to us. So when we read 1 Thessalonians, we need to understand the context of what's going on, and we'll get to that in just a minute. We need to understand kind of the, the purpose of why Paul is writing these things. and What are the big ideas that Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Thessalonica? At the same time, we need to remember that this is also God's word to us. And by the power of the Spirit, you and I will read this New Testament letter and see Christ we will behold the glory of the gospel. We will see how Jesus is the model for us of living in holiness or walking in love or living in light of the future glories that we know will come when he returns. So let's pray, and then we'll get a little overview of what we'll be studying more in depth starting next week. Okay, so let's pray together. God in heaven, I'm so grateful for these students and I'm grateful for this morning of uh, just kind of new beginnings and restarts and refreshment, Lord. And, and God, I pray uh, that, that you would fill each one of us with a sense of expectation. Uh, Lord, you see fit to often uh, move us in powerful ways through your word. You also see fit to move us through the fellowship of other believers. So Lord, I pray whether it's the, the, the large number of these students who will be joining us tomorrow at summer retreat, but all of us as we kind of move along this life together this summer with table groups, with summer Bible study, with all of the things that we have planned, I pray uh, that we would come into contact with the glory of the gospel, that we would see more clearly your grace in our lives, that we would understand more fully the mercy that you have shown us in Christ, and that we would be able to walk more faithfully by the power of the Spirit that lives within us. 
So Lord, help me to teach with clarity and with power. Help these students to listen with attentive hearts and minds so that we might be changed by the power of the word. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you're taking notes this morning, number one will be the context. So we need to get the context of what's going on so that when we go to the first letter to the Thessalonians, there's some clarity about, oh, that's why Paul is saying these things, or that's what he references here. So you should be in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. To get us to Acts 17, we need to remember that Paul is on a missionary journey, right? So the apostle Paul, he is radically converted on the road to Damascus, has his eyes blinded. Jesus comes and speaks to him and then transforms his life and makes him an apostle of Christ so that he might go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel, plant churches and see the the beauty of the gospel, the power of the gospel expand out throughout creation. So he's on one of these missionary journeys and he's going to these different towns. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter 17, uh, coming to Thessalonica. So that's the context of where we are. So let's read, starting in verse one. Now, when they, that's Paul and Silas, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Remember, synagogue is just the Jewish temple. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, so for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ or is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse five, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Let's just stop there. So let's set the scene, right? Paul and Silas on their missionary journey, they come to Thessalonica and Paul goes to the synagogue as he always does because Paul was ethnically, historically a Jew. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees, he says in another letter. And so he goes to the synagogue and he's reasoning with the Jews from the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that this promised one that we know is to come, that we believe that God will send to us, this Messiah, this Christ has already come and his name is Jesus. And so for three weeks, Paul is reasoning and explaining from the scriptures who Jesus is. And it says some of them believed. Not only some of the Jews, but some of the Greeks or some of the Gentiles that lived in Thessalonica. So Thessalonica, just so that we get kind of a picture, it's the capital of Macedonia, this this region in the Roman Empire. 
Macedonia was a cultural hub. It was a trade city. It had a harbor. And so uh, it was full of religion. It was full of religious people. It was full of various ideas, different cultural ideas, different religious ideas. And so Paul comes in reasoning from the scripture saying, hey, you know what it really means to be a Jew? You know what it really means to be the follower of Yahweh? To believe in the Messiah. And you know who the Messiah is? It's Jesus. Now, look at verse 5. The Jews were jealous. So these Jewish leaders saw that Paul was a threat to what was going on. And they're going to most likely, our best understanding of the context of this letter is they're going to start saying lies. They're going to start uh, presenting some rumors, sharing some rumors and spreading it out through Thessalonica that Paul really isn't who he says he is. That Paul is actually a false teacher. That Paul is actually a charlatan. He just, wants it, he just wants people to believe in him so that he can have power, so that he can have authority, so that he can have influence. Paul will speak to that in his letter. And listen to their charge in verses 6 and 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. So Paul and Silas apparently have a reputation, right? And that was, that was their MO. They would go on these missionary journeys. They would share the gospel. They would preach Jesus. And then they would get persecuted to the point where they'd have to escape the city, which is exactly what happens in verse 10. It says the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they had to sneak them out of the city for fear that they were going to be persecuted, arrested, maybe even martyred. And what was the thing that made them the most upset? What was the thing that caused the civil authorities in Macedonia, in, in Thessalonica, this province of the Roman Empire, what was the thing that caused them to be most upset? Look at verse 7. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar by saying there is another king, Jesus. So these leaders are going to the authorities and saying, hey, this Paul, this Silas, they are saying there's another king, and we believe that Caesar is the king, but they're saying that Jesus is the king. And so there's this, this uproar, this mob, this anger towards Paul and Silas that ultimately leads them to have to leave by night. Now, later, Paul would send Timothy to check on the Thessalonians. Because remember, they're surrounded by these Jewish leaders who are spreading false rumors about who Paul is, about what he's teaching. And so Paul, as we'll read in the letter over the next couple of weeks, he's concerned He's concerned that this church, this new church of believers, remember he was only there for three weeks, this new church of believers was going to be tempted to fall away from the truth and believe in error, believe lies instead of what is real and true. So he sends Timothy to go check on the Thessalonians and his return and report prompted what comes next for us. That's the occasion and the purpose of this letter. So number two, the occasion and purpose. So we know the context of the church in Thessalonica. Now we need to know what's going on with the letter. Paul wants to respond to Timothy's report. So Timothy goes and meets with the church in Thessalonica. He hears a bunch of things. He comes back to Paul and says, hey, look, things are actually going really well. Uh, there's, some, there's some things we need to think through and some things you probably need to address. But overall, like they're faithful. They're trusting Jesus. They, they're believing the gospel. They're, they're walking in unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, this is a really encouraging report. And so Paul is going to respond in various ways throughout this letter. As we probably can guess, the church was facing persecution, right? This church was facing real persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul's going to write in order to encourage them. He mentions their faith as an example to the world 
of Christ's worth. And that's going to be Paul's point in chapter one. Paul's legitimacy was also being threatened. Remember the Jews were going to come and say false things about Paul, false things about what he was teaching, false things about his motives. And so Paul is going to uh, legitimize his authority as an apostle. He's going, to, he's going to remind the church in Thessalonica why he really came to them. Was it to have power? Was it to create some influence? Or was it to do something more God-glorifying? We'll see that in chapter 2. Now, the Thessalonians were doing some things very, very well. So you'll, you'll see this kind of refrain a couple of times in, Thess- in, in 1 Thessalonians where Paul will write something like this. Concerning this, brothers, you don't need anybody to write to you about that. So like, what an encouragement, right, to hear from the Apostle Paul. Um, this idea, this thing about following Jesus or this thing about living a holy life, nobody needs to write to you about that. You guys are doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. That's going to be Paul's refrain in a lot of scenarios. But there were some potential problems, both in doctrine and in practice, that needs to be addressed. So based on that report, Paul is going to write about things like, uh, what does it mean to walk in holiness as the body of Christ, especially as it relates to sexual immorality? Now, Thessalonica, being a cultural hub, being a trade city, was probably full of promiscuity, right? So one of the ways that... um, uh, the, the, the Greek uh, culture and the Greek religions that following after the Greek gods and goddesses, one of the ways that people would worship was through prostitution and through cult prostitution in these temples. And so this would have been the world that they lived in, this very vulgar, this very promiscuous culture. And so Paul is saying, look, I know that's your world, but you're not in that world anymore. And so we need to be serious about what God says to us about walking in holiness, especially as it relates to our purity before the Lord. So he's going to talk about that in chapter four. In addition, there were some confusing ideas among the Thessalonians surrounding the fate of those who believed in Jesus, but had died. So remember they were persecuted. So it's, it's very likely that some of the people they have in mind have been martyred for their faith. Some of the people that they have in mind have died believing in Jesus. And as they await Jesus's return, they're thinking, well, what's going to happen to him or what's going to happen to her if they've already died? So Paul's going to write in chapters four and five to set some things straight. And we'll just be honest here. This is some difficult stuff for us to get our minds around. We're thinking about the end of days and the resurrection and the return of Christ, but it's helpful for us to walk through these things so that we might have clarity in our own mind about how we might live in response. He also is going to give Um, the Thessalonians some insight of practical ways to model a Christ-like life together as the church. So just day by day, what does it look like for you as a believer to live as a Christian? I mean, like, what does it just, what does it look like practically? And we can talk about these ideas and these doctrines, but when we put boots on the ground, what does it look like? So Paul has this, this purpose, this idea to say, I need to tell them, what does that look like? So as you can see, Paul had many reasons Many reasons to write this letter, to encourage, to exhort, to challenge, to clarify, to defend, and more. But we also know, as I said earlier, that the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write this letter for us as well. And so when we read Paul here in 1 Thessalonians, we can be sure that the Lord speaks to us now by His Spirit, revealing the glory of Jesus. So, just kind of a small aside that I think is helpful for us to be reminded of. 
Um, this, this book was given to you and me for a reason. Now, I think you've probably heard me say this before, and if, if so, that's okay. I can just say it again. So there's a difference between, I'm going to give you two kind of big word ideas. Okay, you ready? Number one is extrinsic knowledge. Say extrinsic. Extrinsic knowledge. Okay? And the other is intrinsic knowledge. Say intrinsic. Okay, those are two big, big words, and you don't really have to remember them, but I want you to remember the ideas. So extrinsic knowledge is knowledge outside of you, right? Exterior, extrinsic. So let's think about a bicycle, okay? I don't have a bicycle, but you can just use your imagination, right? I think all of us know what a bicycle looks like. Extrinsic knowledge would be a list or an index of facts about that bicycle, right? I could be like, behold, one bicycle, two wheels, these are the pedals, this is the seat, this is the chain, this is how the bicycle works, here's the handlebars, this is what you hold, right? So I can give you a list of facts, it's red, right? The wheels are silver, the tires are black. I can give you all of these, these facts, these, these propositions about what this bike is. And I can even tell you what this bike is for, right? Like this bike is for getting somebody from one place to another faster than walking, right? Right? In an easier way. So I can, I can tell you all of these propositions, all of these truths, all of these facts about this bike. And if you memorize them, then you could say, I know a lot about that bike. Right? Like, I, I know that that bike is red or blue or whatever color it is. I know how the pedals work. I know what the chain is for. I know how the brakes work. I know how the wheels move. I, I can tell you all kinds of things about that bike. But that's extrinsic knowledge. Intrinsic knowledge is internal knowledge. It's knowledge on the inside. So intrinsic knowledge is, hey, look, I don't even know what any of these things are called. I don't know uh, anything about how this thing works or the mechanics of it. I just know that when I get on it and I push my feet and hold here, I can move. Right? So it's experiential. It's a relationship that I now have with this thing that gives me a kind of knowledge that is not the same as those facts from earlier. Does that make sense? So, so extrinsic knowledge is important. Intrinsic knowledge is, is actually knowing the thing as it exists for the purpose of that thing, right? Like I might not know that these are called pedals or I might not know that these are called uh, disc brakes, but I know that when I click these things, I stop fast, right? The Bible, we need to be very careful with. Because the Bible is full of extrinsic facts. The Bible is full of propositions and ideas that you and I need to know. They are vitally important for us as Christians to understand and to be able to catalog in our minds and hide away in our hearts that we know God, that we know his word, that we understand the story. But this book was not given primarily for you to accrue facts. This book was given so that you might know a person, right? So the goal of reading and studying scripture is not the main purpose, is not to grow in our list of facts that we now have control of in our mind. The goal of studying scripture is to know and love God in Christ. And as we read and study scripture, as we meet Jesus in his word, Sure, we will grow in our list of facts. Sure, we will grow in these categories that we need to be able to articulate what it is that we believe. 
But that's, that's not the goal. The goal is Christ. And so my goal for you and me, my hope for you and me, as we study God's word together, is that we would come to the end of our study and say, isn't Jesus amazing? Don't, don't you love him more? Don't you believe in him more surely? Don't you find your confidence growing in him? Don't you hear him speak to you through his word by his spirit? That's the goal. So when we read the Bible, we need to understand the context. We need to understand the occasion and purpose. We need to understand all those facts about who Paul is and who Thessalonica is and what the church is doing. Yes, but we learn those things so that we might know Jesus and we might see him for who he is as he reveals himself to us in his word. All right, one more thing, and then we're going to be done a little bit early, and I want to give you some time to just fellowship and hang out for a little bit before we close. But um, third thing for tonight, for tonight, for this morning, is uh, structure and themes. So we've talked about occasion and purpose. Now we're going to look at structure and themes. So what should we expect as we walk through this letter together? 1 Thessalonians is split into two major sections. And this is going to help you as you read on your own, which I would highly encourage you to do. Like, it's five chapters. So, so how about this as like a challenge? I would encourage you to read all of 1 Thessalonians like every week. It takes you about 10 minutes to read it. Um, 12 if you want to be like slow and steady. So I'll tell you like, for me, just an easy thing that I do. I listen to 1 Thessalonians, I listen to an audio version every morning. So I go on a walk every morning and I listen to 1 Thessalonians and it's the first thing I do. So you don't have to emulate that. You don't have to copy that, but it's just one way to say, I just want to become familiar with this letter. So for you, like once a week, just think through how I might read this letter once a week. And then maybe whatever the section is that we're studying, why don't you read that a couple of times and ask some questions about it, make some notes, come to the Sunday school, come to table groups, familiar with the text. That will be so, so helpful for you as we think through what God is saying to us in his word. But it's split in two major sections. So chapters one through three is all about the faithfulness of both the church and of Paul as they follow Jesus, the truly faithful one. So it's here that we're going to see a lot of indicatives. There's another big word for us this morning, okay? So indicatives, they indicate so there's something that's telling me something. So chapters one through three of 1 Thessalonians, full of indicatives about what the gospel is and about who we are in Christ and about the way things are for believers. The second section, chapters four and five, are full of imperatives. So an imperative, if you've taken like an English class or a liter or yeah, English, like a grammar class or a composition class, an imperative is a command, right? An imperative is this is what you need to do. So we need the indicatives first. We need to have something indicated about who we are. And then Paul will say, hey, you remember when I told you who you are? Now do this or live this way or don't do these things, right? And that order is very important. We need the indicatives first before the imperatives because it will help us to remember the order of our lives as followers of Jesus. The world will say, you need to do, 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 and don't do, don't do, don't do, and then you will be this. And that's not how the gospel works. How the gospel works is the, the opposite of that, right? God has done, so this is who you are. Now that you have been changed, now live in this way, right? We're not accruing achievements. We're not obeying in order to become something. 
We are living our life in response to what God has done. And the structure of 1 Thessalonians reminds us of that. Jesus changes my life. I don't do anything to become a Christian. I don't, uh, there's no cost. It's, the cost has already been paid. So Jesus changes my life, and then my life begins to bear a different kind of fruit than it did before. At the beginning, the middle, and the end of the letter, Paul is going to pray. So Paul starts his letter with a prayer. He goes in between those two major sections with a prayer, and he ends his letter with a prayer. And that's helpful to see too, because prayer has to be tightly woven into all that we do as followers of Jesus. Shameless plug. I don't know if all of you, well, I know that all of you don't, but I would encourage you this year, uh, starting this fall, if you're not a part of equipping groups, make every effort to be a part of equipping groups on Wednesday nights. We're going to be studying prayer. We're going to be praying together. Um, I think it's going to be very complimentary to having gone through this letter and then diving into a small group study on prayer and be really, really important. But prayer has to be woven into all that we say and do and all that we teach one another about who Jesus is and how we live in light of him as his followers. We pray to come before the Lord with our whole selves, our joys, our sorrows, our questions, our doubts, our victories, and more. And Paul models that for us in his letter, that he comes to Jesus in prayer as his whole self, not as a version of himself that seems really put together, but as his whole self, who he really is. We're going to see some themes throughout the letter. I just want to highlight three to you. So if you have, um, if you want to flip over to 1 Thessalonians very quickly, kind of three big themes. So in the first three chapters, we're going to get a lot of gospel, a lot of context of what's going on. We're going to see in chapter three, the report uh, that Timothy gives to, to Paul. In chapters four and five, we're going to see some themes of those imperatives of how we might live as followers of Jesus. So the first theme we're going to pick up on is holiness. Holiness. God wants you and me to live holy lives. Now to be holy means to be set apart. So our lives then will look different than many people around us. But it's not just a setting apart to be different for different sake. So it's not like we're just going to think, okay, a Christian means to be as weird as possible in the world. Like that's not, that's not what that means. It does mean that you're going to be weird in some ways. But what it means is, is that you're going to be holy. You're going to be set apart for righteousness. So set apart for righteousness is different than just being different for different sake, right? We're not just contrarians. We want to be holy. So in chapter 4, um, he says, Finally then, brothers, this is verse 1, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. So he's starting this section by saying, Look, we want you to grow. We want you to grow from where you are to where you could be by the power of the gospel and by the work of the Spirit in your life. So you have already put into practice a lot of these things, and what we've already taught you and what we've already urged you of how you ought to walk and please God, we want you to grow. And so here's a letter that will help you. That's what this is going to be for. Then he keeps going, um, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. So the will of God for your life is to become sanctified. 
That's what that says. The will of God for your life is to become sanctified. And one of the ways we do that is to abstain from sexual immorality. He keeps going on to say, um, in these ways and others, we want to walk in holiness. We don't want to live in the way that the world lives. We want to live in the way that God has called us to live. The next theme that we're going to see is love. Love. What does it mean to live a life of love for God and for one another? Now, that can mean a lot of different things, and there's discernment required to see how that might be put into practice. But here's an encouragement. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. He keeps going to talk about what are some ways that, that looks, what does that look like practically? So we're going to see that not just in chapter four, but, but throughout this letter, that love is this theme, this motivating fuel that propels us forward as followers of Jesus. If we, this is 1 Corinthians 13, but it's also Paul, it's also scripture, right? If we do all of these wonderful things, if we, if we speak with the, the tongues of men and angels, if we have all wisdom, if we have all prophecy, if we have all these things, we don't have love, Paul says, it's, it's meaningless. And there are going to be some ways in which you and I need to think about how we might apply that to our lives, not just, not just personally, not just like for me, but, but as we look around the room and we say, okay, these are the people. This is not an accident. God didn't say, ah, isn't that weird? These people are in this room at the same time. No, this is by design that God has put these people in this room so that you might learn how to walk in brotherly love together. Now, here's how I know that. Because some of y'all are hard to love. Fair? Like some of you look around the room and you're like, man, that person is just really hard to love. And I know that for some of you, like I'm that person, you know? Like, I don't know what it is, but like I just seem to press your buttons or something like that. Or there's other people in this room that you're like, they're just hard to love. Some people in this room are easy to love. You get along, you have a lot of affinities with one another. You get along just, it's like, it's like natural. For other people, it's like oil and water. And Paul doesn't seem to give us anything to say like, hey, just go to the people that it's easy with and love them and avoid the other people. And he's like, this is the body. Like, people don't hate their own body, right? If the hand was just like, I just cannot stand the foot. She can't stand it, right? And then you like break your foot and you're like, foot, I'm not touching it, right? No, we know that that's not how it works, right? Like, that's not how any of this works. No, we're called to love one another, period. And the people that God has seen fit to put in our midst as brothers and sisters in this youth ministry and in this church, when we wonder, who is it specifically that God is calling me to love with a Christ-like love? It's those people. It's those people. So holiness, love, and then last is hope. Hope. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we know the end of the story, right? We, we know how this all plays out. We know what is going to be the end for the wicked and for the sinful and for those who do not follow Jesus, who have not trusted in him as their savior and their Lord. And we know the fate and the end of those who are uh, 
following Jesus and have been saved by his grace through faith. We, we know the end of this whole creation. We know the end of what is going to be eternity. So how do what we know about those things influence and affect the way that we live today? In other words, how does our hope change the way we live now? And, it, and Paul's going to help us understand that we live in light of the end in some ways, by living as though it's already come. Because the Spirit has come to us. Right? We have the Spirit of Jesus now. He sent us His Spirit. And so that, that reality of who we are in Christ means that the, the promises and the blessings of our future hope are being imported in, in, in shadows and in figures even today. It's why we can go to our enemies and love them, and pray for them. It's why we can endure hardship with people in this room and be quick to forgive, because we know the end of the story. And we know that, well, the end of the story, I will not have, I won't have the capacity to be bitter. I won't have the capacity to hold a grudge. I won't have the capacity to maliciously misinterpret what someone is saying. And I can start living like that now. So, so this letter is going to give us some categories and some practical help on how we might live in light of the future, how we might live in light of our hope for all that Jesus has done for us. So that's where we're headed. First Thessalonians. I think it's going to be really helpful for us my encouragement to you, my challenge to you, and just this, this is just a, a general rule. It will be more helpful. It will be more meaningful to you. It will be more appropriate and applicable to your mind and to your heart if it's familiar to you, right? So um, I, I love music. You may have heard me say this before. I love music. I listen to music all the time. My brother is a band director. He really likes music, right? And so um, if, if Josh and I go to a concert, um, let's just use an example. There's this guy named uh, Jacob Collier, who if you don't know who that is, you're missing out. Okay, he's great. He's fantastic. It's kind of hard to explain even what kind of music it is. It's just like wild. Okay, so we went and saw him in concert. Now, I like to listen to Jacob Collier. I like to listen to his music. Some of his stuff is really cool. Some of his stuff is really complex. It's really hard to understand. I'm like, what's going on? You're like, I'm kind of like in the wilderness right now trying to figure out even where like the beat is, like what is going on, but it's cool and I like it, right? So, so Josh and I go to this concert and I enjoy it. I had a great time I and mean, it was fantastic. I mean, the, the performance was great. The music was great. Their skill was obviously like off the charts. But I was only able to appreciate and enjoy what I was familiar with, right? So, so I'm seeing things happen, and I'm missing things because I don't know that, like, hey, actually what he just did is a really, really hard thing to do. Like, that's a really big deal, right? So Josh, on the other hand, is so familiar with music in general and so familiar with this guy's music in particular that we can be watching the same thing, and he's like blown away in a different kind of way. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's seeing things that I don't see and he's picking up on things that I'm not picking up on. And he's, he's actually thinking about like, 
the way that the music is being arranged and orchestrated and what things are happening at different times. And he's just operating on a different level than I am. It's not because he's smarter than me, right? Like it's not an issue of capacity. It's not an issue of intelligence. It's an issue of familiarity. Like what I'm familiar with is that thing that I'm going to actually be able to appreciate more and more. And for you students, your appreciation of the Bible is connected to your level of familiarity with it. It's not an issue of intelligence. So when you read the Bible, I know, I know, I I feel this way even now, I promise you. When I read a text and I'm just like, I don't don't know what he's saying. I don't know what's going on in this passage. Like, have you ever felt that way? Like you're reading the Bible and you're like, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible. I'm a Christian. That's what Christians do. And you read this Bible and you're like, I just read a whole paragraph and I don't know what's going on. This is really hard. Yeah, because you're reading from like 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, a completely different culture from a different language that was translated. There's going to be some difficulty, right? But over time, you can develop some familiarity with the text of Scripture, not just 1 Thessalonians, but with the whole Bible, so that when you go to the Scripture again and again as this living and active Word inspired by the Spirit, and that same Spirit is illuminating your heart and mind to see things that you didn't see before, I mean, who knows what kind of wonders are there for you? Who knows what kind of treasures you'll find? But you will not find it if you don't go look. Like It's there for you. So my encouragement to you is to to take this summer as a serious challenge to be a student of Scripture, to come to table groups on Sunday mornings ready to discuss questions in hand, thinking through, God, what is it that you want me to hear from your word? Because the Spirit can do whatever he wants. But throughout church history, what we've seen is he works through the means of your effort to know him. So it's not like you just sit with your Bible closed and go, Spirit, Sunday school's tomorrow. I just need you to download everything that I need to know. Like, he can do that if he wants, but he normally doesn't right? Normally it's, okay, I'm writing these notes down and I'm asking these questions and God, I'm, I'm trying to understand, would you give me eyes to see? Would you help me understand how this verse relates to this thing? Because it seems to make, oh, that's how it makes sense. Right? That didn't come from you, did it? Right? Like that's the kind of prayer that the spirit loves to answer. And I want you to experience him answering those prayers for you as well. So I will do my work. I will do my due diligence to come, with, come to you on Sunday mornings with a word from this text. But I want you to join me in that by being prepared to receive it and being prepared to apply it and being familiar with it as well. So that's the goal for this summer. That's the goal for table groups in general. And that's all we've got for today. So here's what I'm gonna do. I wanna pray for you. We're gonna spend just a couple of minutes hanging out um, and then Rachel will dismiss you. I've gotta run because I'm doing a baptism today. Hooray. And uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, let me pray for you and, um, we'll hang out for a bit.